Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships, and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides, and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification, which grants you instant access to our Google Drive, which has all of these resources, including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all-new Discord channel, which allows you to have interaction with me, where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT Tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. After this podcast and your subsequent classroom instruction, you, the EMT student, should understand how to manage a patient with chest trauma. You should be able to recognize life threats associated with these injuries and how to provide immediate intervention. We're also going to talk about the anatomy and physiology of the chest and underlying organs, as well as the pathophysiology, complications, assessment, and management of chest injuries. We will also discuss the age-related issues as it pertains to pediatric and geriatric chest trauma. We will talk about the incidence, which is the morbidity and mortality rate, in regards to blunt versus penetrating or open trauma. And last, we'll discuss some specific chest injuries, such as a sucking chest wound, a pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax, hemothorax, phyllo chest, and pericardial tamponade. All right, as with all of our other lectures, we're now going to identify the knowledge domains. And if you're new to this podcast, knowledge domains is the information you must know and retain to be not only successful in your program, but for national registry testing. Okay, you, the EMT student, should be able to explain the mechanics of ventilation in relation to chest injuries. You should also know the differences between open and closed chest injury. You should be able to recognize the signs of a chest injury. Additionally, you should be able to describe the management of a patient with a suspected chest injury, including pneumothorax, hemothorax, cardiac tamponade, rib fractures, flail chest, pulmonary contusion, traumatic asphyxia, blunt myocardial injury, commodio cordis, and laceration of the great vessels. You should be able to recognize the complications that can accompany chest injuries. 
You should also be able to explain the complications of a patient with an open pneumothorax, which is AKA a sucking chest wound. The EMT student should be able to differentiate between a pneumothorax, open, simple, and tension, and a hemothorax. You should also be able to describe the complications of a cardiac tamponade, rib fractures, and a patient with a flailed chest. Not too bad on this particular lecture, and once again, we're gonna break this up into sizable chunks to help you wrap your head around chest injuries. All right, let's get to it. Chest trauma causes more than 700,000 emergency room visits and more than 18,000 deaths in the United States each year. Such injuries can involve the heart, lungs, and great blood vessels. They may be the result of blunt trauma, penetrating trauma, or both. EMTs must treat any injuries that interfere with the body's mechanics of normal breathing without delay. Internal bleeding can collect in the chest cavity, compressing the lungs or heart. Air may collect in the chest and prevent the lungs from expanding. Okay, now we're gonna go over anatomy and physiology, which should be a review at this point in time in your program. Remember the difference between ventilation and oxygenation. Ventilation is the body's ability to move air in and out of the chest and lung tissue. Oxygenation is the process of delivering oxygen to the blood by diffusion from the alveoli following inhalation into the lungs. Injuries affecting the patient's ventilation or oxygenation are serious and may be life-threatening. The chest, thoracic cage, extends from the lower end of the neck to the diaphragm. A penetrating injury to the chest may also penetrate the lungs and diaphragm and injure the liver or stomach. Thoracic skin, muscle, and bones have similarities to skin, muscle, and bones in other regions of the body. Unique features such as striated or skeletal muscle allow for ventilation. Intercostal muscles extend between the ribs. These muscles are not yet developed in the very young who tend to breathe from their diaphragm, thus we call them belly breathing. Intercostal muscles are innervated from the spinal nerves. They allow the chest to expand on contraction and the active portion of ventilation to occur. The neurovascular bundle is a network of nerves, arteries, and veins lying closely along the inferior and slightly posterior to the lowest margin of each rib. They can be a source of significant bleeding in the pleural space. All right, the pleural covers each of the lungs and the thoracic cavity. The parietal pleura is the inner chest wall lining. The visceral pleural covers the lung. A small amount of pleural fluid between the parietal and visceral pleura allow the lungs to move freely against the inner chest wall as a person breathes. For testing purposes, it is imperative that you know the difference between parietal and visceral pleura and where it is found, as well as the simple fact that pleura fluid is a lubricant and what happens when that lubricant becomes dry. Okay, moving on. The ribs are connected in the back to the vertebrae and in the front to the sternum. The trachea divides into the left and right main stem bronchi, which supply air to the lungs. The thoracic cage contains the heart and the great vessels, which are the aorta, the right and left subclavian arteries and their branches, as well as the pulmonary arteries and the superior and inferior vena cava. The medium stinum is the central part of the chest containing the heart, great vessels, esophagus, and trachea. This location is where a thoracic aortic dissection can occur 
which is a severing of the aorta that can occur when the body is exposed to traumatic forces. The diaphragm is a muscle that separates the thoracic cavity from the abdominal cavity. All right, now let's talk about the mechanics of ventilation. The intercostal muscles, which lie between the ribs, contract during inhalation. The diaphragm contracts or flattens at the same time. The intrathoracic pressure inside the chest decreases, creating a negative pressure differential. Air then enters the lungs through the nose and mouth. The intercostal muscles and diaphragms relax during exhalation, allowing the air to be exhaled. The body should not have to work to breathe when it is in a resting state. A patient whose spinal cord is injured below the C5 level may lose the power to move the intercostal muscles. The diaphragm should still contract. The patient will still be able to breathe because the phrenic nerves remain intact. Now, patients with a spinal injury at C3 or above can lose the ability to breathe entirely. All right, we're now going to talk about minute ventilation or minute volume. This is the amount of air moved through the lungs in one minute. It is calculated by multiplying the normal tidal volume by a patient's respiratory rate. Patients with decreased tidal volume will have an increased respiratory rate. A 1,000 to 1,500 milliliter bag valve mask might overinflate the lungs, causing gastric distension and impaired lung function. Overventilation can increase interthoracic pressure, reducing cardiac output, and potentially worsening chest injuries such as a pneumothorax. Additionally, rapid respirations can cause acid-base imbalances and blood gas imbalances. Once again, you should just know how a minute volume is calculated as well as hyperventilation and overventilation can do to your patient. All right, we're now gonna talk specifically about injuries of the chest. There are two basic types of chest injuries, open and closed. In closed chest injuries, the skin is not broken. They are generally caused by blunt trauma. They often cause significant contusions in cardiac muscle, which would be a cardiac contusion, and lung tissue, which will be a pulmonary contusion. If the heart is damaged, it may not be able to refill with blood or blood may not be pumped with enough force out of the heart. This results in cardiogenic shock. Now, lung tissue bruising can result in exponential loss of surface area. This leads to a decreased oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, can cause hypoxia and hypercarbic states. Rib fractures can lacerate lung tissue and cause further vessel damage with every chest wall movement. This can rapidly lead to hypovolemic shock. In open chest injuries, an object such as a knife, bullet, or something piercing the chest penetrates the chest wall itself. Such injuries can cause instant damage, but symptoms develop over time. An impelled object remains in place. Do not attempt to move or remove the object. It may be occluding the hole in the punctured vessel and removal would cause heavy bleeding. This may also cause damage during removal, so thus it has to be surgically removed. Now, blunt trauma to the chest may fracture the ribs, sternum, and chest walls. It may also bruise the lungs and heart and even damage the aorta. Almost one-third of people killed immediately in car crashes die as a result of traumatic rupture of the aorta. Vital organs can be torn from their attachment in the chest cavity, causing internal life-threatening bleeding. Okay, let's talk about signs and symptoms of chest injury. 
there will be pain at the site of injury. Pain can be localized at the site of injury that is aggravated by or increased with breathing. Irritation of or damage to the pleural surfaces causes sharp or sticking pain with each breath, and this is known as pleuritic pain or pleurisy. Bruising to the chest wall might be evident, and you might have crepitus with palpation of the chest, as well as there might be penetrating injury to the chest. The patient may also complain of dyspnea. Don't forget that's difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. This can be caused by airway obstruction, damage to the chest wall, improper chest expansion, or lung compression. Prompt, vigorous support of oxygenation and ventilation with prompt transport are required for your patient to survive. All right, in continuing with signs and symptoms, we have a condition called hemoptysis. This is spitting or coughing up of blood. I know, why can't we just say that, right? Well, hemoptysis indicates damage to the lung or air passage. There can also be failure of one or both sides of the chest to expand normally with inspiration. Your patient may present with rapid, weak pulse and low blood pressure. These are the principal signs of hypovolemic shock, and this can be a direct result from extensive bleeding of lacerated structures within the chest cavity. The patient could also present with cyanosis around the lips or fingernails. This symptom would be a sign of inadequate respiration and requires you to provide immediate ventilation and oxygenation to the patient as required. Patients with chest injuries often have tachypnea, rapid respirations, and shallow respirations because it hurts to take a deep breath. The patient may not actually be moving air due to chest wall trauma. Auscultate multiple locations on the chest wall to assess for adequate breath sounds. All right, we're now gonna talk about your specific patient assessment as it relates to chest injuries. Okay, we're gonna first talk about scene size up. Under scene safety, observe for hazards and threats to the safety of the crew, bystanders, and the patient. If the area is a crime scene, do not disturb evidence if possible. Request law enforcement for scenes involving violence. An example of that would be an assault, gunshot wounds, etc. If needed, call for an electrical unit, fire department, or advanced life support units early. At a minimum, you should be wearing gloves and eye protection. Now under your MOI, chest injuries are common in motor vehicle crashes, falls, industrial accidents, and assaults. Determine the number of patients that you have and consider spinal immobilization. All right, let's talk about primary assessment. Form a general impression. Life-threatening hemorrhage, when present, should be addressed immediately, even before airway concerns. Remember, we're driving this home. Note the patient's level of consciousness. Perform a rapid physical examination. Observe for injuries, appearance of blood, any difficulty breathing, cyanosis, irregular breathing, chest rise and fall on only one side, accessory muscle use, extended or engorged external jugular veins, assess airway, breathing, and circulation, and assess the overall appearance and ask, how sick is this patient? This is basically one of the points that I personally like to drive home with my students. See, when you're on scene of a call, you should be asking yourself, do I have time to get to know my patient? Or is this one of those things where I gotta load and go and get my patient to the emergency room? Remember, 
we're looking immediately for anything that is going to kill our patient. And if you have that in back of your mind when you're doing your assessment, this is what you're looking for. And if you don't find anything, then yes, we have time to get to know our patient and provide them with a more thorough assessment and medical attention. However, if they are what we call circling the drain, then we got to get moving. We got to get them to the emergency room because the only person that's going to save their life is going to be a physician. All right, now let's talk specifically about airway and breathing. Addressing life threats begins with the airway and breathing unless life-threatening uncontrolled bleeding is seen. Ensure that the patient has a clear and patent airway. Normal breathing should be effortless and any deviation from this pattern should be a cause of concern. Consider early cervical spinal immobilization when blunt trauma is present. Note whether the jugular veins are distended. Distended jugular veins are a sign of pressure on the heart, which is referred to as a tamponade. This may be a direct result from a tension pneumothorax, thorax or may be a result from injury to the heart, which is allowing bleeding in the pericardium. And that would be a pericardial tamponade. And this is something that we are not fixing in the field. Determine whether breathing is present and adequate and inspect for decap BTLS. Look for equal expansion of the chest wall. Unequal expansion indicates loss of muscle function, and this may be due to a direct injury to the chest wall, or it may be related to an injury of the nerves controlling those muscles. You should also be checking for paradoxical motion and abnormality associated with multiple fractured ribs. Remember what paradoxical motion is an indication of. Yes, a flailed chest. If you have any penetrating injuries to the chest, you should be applying a occlusive dressing and support ventilations. You should supply oxygen via a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute. If breathing is inadequate, provide positive pressure ventilations. Do not use this type of ventilation for patients with a pneumothorax. You should continue to auscultate breath sounds and reassess the effectiveness of ventilatory support. Be alert for decreasing oxygen saturation. This can lead to hypoxia. Be alert for signs of impending tension pneumothorax. An example of that would be increasingly poor compliance during ventilation. All right, let's talk a little bit about circulation. Assess the pulse and determine whether it is present and adequate. If the pulse is too fast or too slow, or if the skin is pale, cool, or clammy, consider the patient to be in shock. I'm gonna tell you right now, Pale, cool, diaphoretic, your patient is in shock. Address life-threatening external bleeding immediately. Control external bleeding using direct pressure and a bulky trauma dressing. Now, as far as transport decisions, priority patients are those who have a problem with their airway, breathing, or circulation. Pay attention to subtle clues, which include appearance of the skin, level of consciousness, a sense of impending doom in the patient. And what is exactly that? Well, you will have patients that will tell you they feel as if they're going to die. That is that impending doom. They feel it. Be very aware of that. A delay on the scene to perform any lengthy assessment will reduce the chances of survival for the patient. With chest injuries, when in doubt, transport rapidly to the hospital. All right, let's talk a little bit about history taking now. As before, investigate the chief complaint. Further investigate the mechanism of injury. 
Identify associated signs and symptoms and pertinent negatives. Verify where the pain is located in relation to the area being touched. Remember, pain can be deferred or it could radiate. Now, some of the pertinent negatives when you're examining the chest can be no associated shortness of breath, no rapid breathing, no absence or abnormal breath sounds, no areas of deformity or abnormal movement. Equal expansion of the chest and movement of the rib cage and diaphragm can confirm that there is nerve conduction to that region of the body. So while we're looking for things that are wrong with the patient, we're also looking for things that are not wrong. And that's what we call pertinent negatives. And those are always good for us. All right, a little bit about sample history. A basic evaluation should be completed when time allows with a focus on signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, pertinent medical problems, including respiratory or cardiovascular disease, the patient's last oral intake, and events leading to the emergency. When you're investigating the MOI, you need to be that detective. So if the patient was involved in a traffic accident, ask, what was the speed of the vehicle? Or if the patient fell, what was the height of the fall? Or if the patient was using some type of equipment, what was the equipment that they were using? Or did the fire department have to use safety equipment to extricate the patient? Was the patient shot? And what kind of gun was used? So there are various different things that you should be asking to determine the true MOI. Okay, we're now gonna move into the secondary assessment. Under physical examinations, when you have an isolated injury with a limited MOI, you should focus on the isolated injury, the patient's complaint, body region affected, ensuring wounds are identified and bleeding is controlled, the location and extent of the injury, assessment of all underlying systems, anterior and posterior aspects of the chest wall, and changes in the patient's ability to maintain adequate respirations. Now for significant trauma likely affecting multiple systems, start with a rapid physical examination and use DCAP BTLS to determine the nature and extent of the thoracic injury. Okay, vital signs. This activity should include assessment of the pulse, respirations, blood pressure, skin condition, and pupils. Reevaluate your patient every five minutes or less. A rapid pulse or respiratory rate may indicate that the chest injury is causing a decrease in available oxygen, aka hypoxia, or blood loss resulting in decreased red blood cell count, hypoxemia. Increased work of breathing can be identified by the use of accessory muscles in the face, neck, and chest. Pulse and respiratory rates may decrease in later stages of chest injury. The myocardium becomes starved for oxygen and the body can no longer keep up with the demands. Additionally, the brain becomes starved for oxygen as well and overloads with carbon dioxide and other waste products, which obviously is not good. All right, let's talk a little bit about your reassessment. Repeat the primary assessment. Reassess the chief complaint. Reevaluate the patient's airway, breathing, pulse, perfusion, and bleeding. Now, in regards to interventions, reassess vital signs and observe trends. Provide appropriate spinal stabilization for patients who have blunt trauma with suspected spinal injuries. 
Maintain an open airway, but be prepared to suction the patient. You should consider an OP or NP airway if indicated. You should be controlling significant visible bleeding and providing high flow oxygen. You should place an inclusive dressing over any penetrating trauma to the chest wall. Now patients who have signs of hypoperfusion, once again, AKA shock, provide aggressive treatment for this shock and provide rapid transport. Do not delay transport to complete non-life threatening saving treatments. These can be performed in route to the hospital. Now last, communication and documentation. Communicate all relevant information to the staff at the receiving emergency room. Describe all injuries and the treatment you gave. All right, do you know what time it is? Well, if you're not new to this podcast, you know it's break time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've been going strong now for a little over 23 minutes, and I think this would be a good place for us to take that much needed break. So once again, hit the pause button, go to use the restroom, grab something to drink and come on back and we're gonna finish this podcast up. Complications and management of chest injuries. Let's first talk about a pneumothorax. This is commonly called a collapsed lung. This describes the accumulation of air in the pleura space. Air enters through a hole in the chest wall or surface of the lung. The patient's attempts to breathe causes the lung on that side to collapse. Blood passing through the collapsed portion of the lung is not oxygenated. Breath sounds on the affected side of the chest indicate different conditions. If the lung is collapsed past 30 to 40%, you may hear diminished breath sounds. Absent breath sounds may indicate a tension pneumothorax. Now, a sucking sound on inhalation and the sound of rushing air on exhalation indicates that the chest wall has been penetrated. An open chest wound is often called an open pneumothorax or a sucking chest wound. After clearing and maintaining a patient's airway and then providing oxygen, these wounds must be rapidly sealed with an inclusive dressing. The dressing prevents air from being sucked into the chest through the wound. Two types of occlusive dressings are available, the commercial vented occlusive dressings and the improvised occlusive dressing utilizing petroleum jelly, which is basically Vaseline. This is a Vaseline-based gauze or aluminum foil or possibly even plastic. Now, let me tell you this much. As far as testing purposes, that's all great information to know. But if you're ever on an emergency call and you have a patient with a sucking chest wound, the best thing that you could do is take your gloved hand and place it over the wound immediately, and then you could continue your assessment. That is a life-saving skill. I have utilized it many times in the field, and it does work. Now, a flutter valve is a one-way valve that allows air to leave the chest cavity but not return. Now, depending on where you work, will depend on if you're allowed to use a flutter valve. So obviously you're gonna follow your local protocols and the guidelines set by the manufacturer when using this valve. After applying the dressing, carefully monitor the patient for signs of a tension pneumothorax. If it develops, open the occlusive dressing on one side. Obviously, once again, consult local protocols and the manufacturer's guidelines. Now. We have a condition that is known as a simple pneumothorax. This does not result in major changes in a patient's cardiac physiology. 
It is commonly the result of blood trauma that results in fractured ribs. Now, you will have decreased breath sounds associated with significant lung collapse. Other signs and symptoms include dyspnea, which is increased work of breathing and increased respiratory rate, tachypnea and accessory muscle use, decreased oxygen saturation, a possible crackling sensation felt on palpation of the skin, which is once again referred to as subcutaneous emphysema or sub-Q. Now some late findings with this are decreased breath sounds on the injured side, lethargy, and cyanosis. Be vigilant because the simple pneumothorax can often worsen or deteriorate into a tension pneumothorax or develop complications like bleeding or a hemothorax. Your pre-hospital treatment for this is provide high flow oxygen, monitor your pulse ox readings and breath sounds, and treat underlying causes of the injury. Do not withhold positive pressure ventilation if the patient needs support. But remember, the use of positive pressure ventilation can cause a pneumothorax, so have a plan to resolve any complications. All right, let's now talk about what a tension pneumo is. Now, a tension pneumothorax results from ongoing air accumulation in the pleural space. This air gradually increases the pressure in the chest. It will cause a complete collapse of the unaffected lung. The median steinum is pushed into the opposite pleural cavity. Now, blood cannot return through the vena cava to the heart. It will decrease cardiac output and will lead to shock. Ultimately, death will result if not corrected. Tension pneumothorax is commonly caused by blunt injury in which a fractured rib lacerates a lung or the bronchus. Common signs and symptoms include chest pain, tachycardia, marked respiratory distress, absent or severely decreased lung sounds on the affected side, hypotension, a altered mental status, JVD, which is jugular vein distension, cyanosis, and tracheal deviation. And this is when the trachea starts to shift. Now your pre-hospital treatment for this condition is Support ventilation with high flow oxygen, request ALS support or transport immediately, and possible needle decompression may be performed by ALS personnel or emergency department staff depending on local protocols. We're now going to talk about the hemothorax. This is a condition in which blood collects in the pleural space from bleeding around the rib cage or from a lung or great vessel. Common signs and symptoms include shock, without any obvious external bleeding or apparent reason for the shock, decreased breath sounds on the affected side, lung is being compressed by the blood basically. Now, your pre-hospital treatment. Bleeding cannot be controlled in the pre-hospital setting. Provide rapid transport to the nearest facility capable of performing surgery. A hemopneumothorax, well this is the presence of air and blood in the pleural space and your patient could possibly have this as well. All right, we're now going to talk about the cardiac tamponade, aka pericardial tamponade, occurs more commonly with penetrating chest trauma, although it may occur in blunt trauma. What is happening is the protective membrane around the heart, which is the pericardium, fills with blood or fluid. The heart then cannot pump an inadequate amount of blood. Signs and symptoms include Beck's triad, which is distended or engorged jugular veins seen on both sides of the trachea, a narrowing pulse pressure, 
and muffled heart sounds. So if you're tested and they ask you, what is the Bex triad? Well, once again, it's distended or engorged jugular veins seen on both sides of the trachea, a narrowing pulse pressure, and muffled heart sounds. Now your patient may present with an altered mental status due to the decreased blood flow to the brain. Your pre-hospital treatment, well, you're gonna support ventilations. You're gonna provide positive pressure ventilation to any patient who is hypoventilating or apneic. And finally, you're gonna rapidly transport the patient to a facility capable of intervention. Now let's talk about something more common that you may respond to, which will be rib fractures. Rib fractures are common, particularly in older people whose bones are brittle. A fracture of one of the upper four ribs is a sign of a very substantial MOI. A fractured rib may lacerate the surface of the lung, causing a pneumothorax, a tension pneumothorax, a hemothorax, or a hemopneumothorax. Say that fast three times. Signs and symptoms include localized tenderness and pain when breathing, rapid shallow respirations due to the pain, and the patient might be holding the infected portion of the rib cage. Now your pre-hospital treatment includes supplemental oxygen and basically transport. Okay, let's talk about that dreaded flail chest. This is caused by a compound rib fracture that detaches a segment of the chest wall from the rest of the thoracic cage. The detached portion of the chest wall moves opposite of normal, and this is referred to as paradoxical motion. During exhalation, this portion will move in. During inhalation, it will move out. Paradoxical motion is a late sign of a flail chest. Now your pre-hospital treatment includes maintain the airway, provide respiratory support if needed, give supplemental oxygen, perform ongoing assessments for possible pneumothorax or other respiratory complications. Treatment may also include positive pressure ventilation with a bag valve mask and rapid transport. Now, back when I first started, we used to splint the fail segment with bulky dressing. This is no longer recommended. A flail chest may indicate serious internal damage and possible spinal injury, so take those precautions just as well. As we begin to come to conclusion of this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the other chest injuries that you may possibly come across. The first one is a pulmonary contusion. This should always be suspected in a patient with a flail chest. The pulmonary alveoli become filled with blood and fluid accumulates in the injured area, leaving the patient hypoxic. Your pre-hospital treatment would include providing supplemental oxygen and positive pressure ventilation as needed to ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation. Then we have essentially other fractures. We could have a sternal fracture and a clavicle fracture. In a sternal fracture, this would require a significant amount of force. Because of this, you should have an increased index of suspicion for injuries to underlying organs, such as to the lungs, great vessels, and the heart itself. Now we can also have clavicle fractures. Now normally clavicle fractures is covered under your skeletal injury lecture, but we're just gonna go over some of the high points. Significant damage or disruption to the large neurovascular bundle the clavicle protects is possible. You should suspect upper rib fractures and medial clavicle fractures. You should be alert for possible signs of a pneumothorax 
as it could develop with these type of fractures or the MOIs that would cause these type of fractures. We're now going to talk about traumatic asphyxia. Traumatic asphyxia is characterized by distended neck veins, cyanosis in the face and neck, and a hemorrhage into the sclera of the eye. This involves sudden severe compression of the chest, which produces a rapid increase in pressure within the chest. An example of this would be an unrestrained driver who hits the steering wheel. This suggests that there are underlying injuries to the heart and possibly a pulmonary contusion. Your pre-hospital treatment would consist of providing ventilatory support with supplemental oxygen and monitoring the vital signs during an immediate transport. All right, now let's talk about the blunt myocardial injury. This injury is essentially bruising of the heart muscle. Blunt trauma may injure the heart itself, making it unable to maintain adequate blood pressure. Signs and symptoms include an irregular pulse rate, patient may complain of chest pain or discomfort similar to cardiac symptoms. Now, suspect myocardial contusion in all cases of severe blunt injury to the chest. Your pre-hospital treatment includes monitor the patient's pulse carefully, note any change in the blood pressure, and provide supplemental oxygen and transport immediately. Now, you should note that ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation are uncommon with this injury. Okay, we're now going to talk about commodial cordis. Now, I have been teaching commodial cordis for years. As a paramedic, I cannot think about one incident where I thought my patient was suffering from this. However, however, it is believed that Darmer Hamlin has actually suffered from commodial cordis when he was hit during the football game. We'll find out more as time goes on, but many of the cardiologists believe that this is what actually caused him to collapse on the football field. So what is it? Well, this is blunt chest trauma caused by a sudden direct blow to the chest that occurs only during the critical portion of a person's heartbeat, and it may result in immediate cardiac arrest. This phenomenon has been documented to have occurred after patients were struck with softballs, baseballs, bats, snowballs, fists, and kicks. When this happens, the patient is put into ventricular fibrillation. However, the patient will respond positively to defibrillation within the first two minutes after the injury. This condition is more commonly associated with sports-related injuries, but should be suspected in all cases in which the person is unconscious and unresponsive after a blow to the chest. So you can see how many EMTs and paramedics were thinking this when they saw the football game. All right, let's now talk about lacerations of the great vessels. When a great vessel ruptures, it's gonna be accompanied by a massive, rapidly fatal hemorrhage. The great vessels include the superior vena cava, the inferior vena cava, the pulmonary arteries, the four main pulmonary veins, the aorta and its major branches. Your pre-hospital treatment can include cardiopulmonary resuscitation, ventilatory support and supplemental oxygen if appropriate, immediate transport, and remain alert to signs and symptoms of shock. You should be closely monitoring changes in baseline vital signs. For example, is your patient becoming tachycardic or hypotensive? All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is it with this lecture. 
Remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Remember, just go to patreon.com and search for The EMT Tutor. Additionally, membership grants exclusive learning content such as members-exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And last, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The EMT Tutor. I'm going to be uploading little tidbits on various different topics, kind of like a quick minute of learning that should help you in your own individual programs as well as preparing for national registry. All right, thanks for listening and happy EMT.